Asset Arrest, your global agent for accessing the property you can't afford. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Asset Arrest, a podcast about financialised housing, real estate and its impact upon communities, the meaning of community, ways of living and urban space. I'm Laura Yule and in each episode I typically invite a guest to attend a viewing of a residential property with me as we pose as potential buyers or renters. Guests are invited to talk about their own work, to share their knowledge and experiences on related issues and to respond to the property that we view together and its place within a wider urban and global context. Asset Arrest now has a Patreon account which you can find at patreon.com forward slash Asset Arrest so please do consider subscribing and supporting the project if you enjoy the podcasts. I work on this project alone and any contributions would help me maintain and sustain it in the longer term as well as expanding the possibilities of what Asset Arrest could do. Support starts from as little as $1 per month, and depending what you pledge, there are many great rewards, including Asset Arrest t-shirts and key rings. This episode takes me to Hong Kong and deviates from the usual format of property viewing. My trip took place in December, and Hong Kong was very much in the midst of unrest, so for various reasons I met my guest, Wing Sheng Tang, at the Hong Kong Baptist University, where he is a professor. The universities had suspended all teaching for the term early and had strict security measures on the gates, so I had to let them copy my passport before I could get in. Sadly, I wasn't there long enough to start viewing property, but I had an incredibly interesting and informative chat with Tang where he imparted much of his important knowledge and experience around urban developments in China and Hong Kong. Tang is a professor at the Department of Geography at Hong Kong Baptist University. His research interest is to comprehend the nature of cities and urban development with a focus on Chinese cities, including Hong Kong. He interrogates Foucault, Lefebvre, Harvey and others by subjecting Western discourses on space to urban experiences in other parts of the world. Recently, he's been interested in exploring how we might apply Chinese philosophies to disentangle the ongoing debate in urban studies around town-country contradictions in China. In doing so, he's initiated urban comparative projects between urban China and South Asia. I have taught in Hong Kong for many years. In the so-called earlier part of my career, I, I tend to focus more on China. That's how I, I was developed as a China expert. And then uh, in the last maybe 10, 10 or so years, in my research party, if not wholly, uh, has returned back to Hong Kong because uh, there have been so many, so many things happening in the city in the last decade or so. So my interest uh, tend to uh, focus more on uh, on Hong Kong. Nevertheless, um, I've just published the, uh, a special issue on urban China research and I, so to speak, go back to, <laughs> to urban China. Uh, my research is mainly to understand cities, make sense of cities. Uh, for example, you know, basically, you know, why has the city developed in the way it did? For example, in the case of Hong Kong, recently a lot of people talking about the high density, about development mm. and then all these things. And then, so my uh, interest uh, has been to understand why there was such a high density development and then how things have done it. And similar in China, um, my work is to make sense of Chinese cities. Now, this has a lot to do with the so-called the, the literature. The literature, which is, uh, I must say, 
very much dominated by the West, so to speak, the hegemony of the Western Academy. Very common that, you know, be it uh, Chinese cities or Hong Kong, uh, researchers would try to uh, employ categories and theories from the West and then try to understand, you know, Hong Kong city, Hong Kong or Chinese city accordingly. Uh, take one example is maybe very common these days now, neoliberalism. Everywhere is neoliberalism. And then, you know, we start to talk about Hong Kong as uh, you know, neoliberalism and then Chinese city as neoliberal uh, urbanism. For example, another thing very common, uh, the concept of gentrification. And then, you know, mm. everywhere gentrification. And uh, certainly we know that uh, China would be very different uh, from the West. So what has been happening is what I have uh, recently in my special issue called all this random conceptual appropriation, a random conceptual indigenization. Simply take the concepts and theories of the West and then indigenize it for China. A very common practice would be something I call it by adding signifiers. For example, you know, we know very much how powerful is the party state. Then uh, usually a lot of researchers would then add, for example, gentrification or neoliberalism, they would say stay led. Assuming that, you know, by simply adding the signifier, those concepts uh, developed in West uh, would be able to be applied to China mm. and that happens to Hong Kong and then basically that happens everywhere. So yeah. uh, in that sense then my research is to make sense of cities in Hong Kong and then in China is to really to take up all these concepts and then try to develop something you know, differently. So for example here instead of uh, gentrification I call it what we have is hegemonic come alienation redevelopment try to you know con appropriate concept for example in terms of china or with the so-called they back to, to marx and a lot of people that then there will be town country contradiction and then so you know then for example the in the recent uh, special years of paper uh, instead of looking at town country contradiction i try to maybe understand the whole development uh, from the perspective of you know what i call is some like the Chinese philosophy, yin yang, then try to understand it from now. Instead of contradiction, we might have, you know, in the Chinese case, is that basically, you know, Tang or Cheng could not survive without the adjoining countryside, Xian. Uh, so instead of then, then I, instead of taking uh, Tang country contradiction, I try to argue that, you know, Tang and country uh, basically are so-called mutually embedded. And as a result, uh, because of that, instead of like uh, what I said earlier, you know, just putting stay let, you know, Tang and country contradiction, try to, you know, call new terms, for example, you know, Cheng Kum Xian, you know, in the sense to represent uh, basically uh, maybe a different, a different processes, a different processes, and that uh, then we need to even call new terms instead of you know just simply adding signifiers and then you yeah. call, call that because you're coming from an entirely different history yeah. and philosophy uh, yes and exactly exactly so you know that i think that's Basically, that's uh, my work that have been characterized in But, in I mean, like, like, people I was meeting in Guangzhou, I mean, they were just using the terms gentrification and yeah, things, like, yeah, yeah, freely. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, and I kept having to yeah, stop yeah, and yeah. ask what they meant by gentrification yeah, yeah, in the yeah, context yeah, 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 of yeah, yeah. Guangzhou or, or yeah, yeah, China. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because, yeah, for me, it's, like, I don't even think this, what is called gentrification, even happens that way in the UK anymore. It's yeah. kind of changed. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it just on the like surface, meaningless. you know, gentrification, you first of all you have the gentry and the gentry and then uh, the, the develop all this and then for example gentrification as it's put down here 
from uh, root uh, class, you know, 1960 talk about London and then talk about all this. You know, so it's a very complicated thing. It's difficult to, for us to take concept out of the, what I call is socio-historical context within which the concept, the theories were developed in the first place. And do you see, I mean, do you think the problems faced as a city or as like in Chinese cities, are, mm-hmm. are they echoed in Hong Kong or do they, they echo what's happening in Hong Kong at all? Or do you think Hong Kong has... I think uh, in a sense, you know, um, basically in in the past, uh, for example, back uh, in the 1980s, you know, Deng Xiaoping had been, uh, had been saying, you know, to repeat Hong Kong um, all over China. Also, uh, I think basic to it uh, was, for example, China introduced so-called the land development right. You know, uh, very important because urban land, in fact, I argue that you know, even in the countryside, although it's so-called collective land, uh, is state, owned by the state. Only is the land in the agricultural area in the countryside is in a transition, is a transition to the state form. So, you know, it's interim, it's interim only, no, no, no state. So, in, in the Chinese system, system is that land is owned by the state. So in terms of ownership, it's non-negotiable. You you can't negotiate. That, that's the state owned. So what the invention uh, at the end of the 70s and beginning of the 1980s was saying that now this is something that we could not touch. Then we need to stimulate the vitality of cities, then how to do it. So instead of touching on the ownership issue, so it creates something called development rights, which is transferable. Now, the how that was developed, it was basically, um, in a sense, borrowed from Hong Kong's leasehold system. Leasehold mm. system was something that invented by the uh, by the British or Hong Kong government uh, back in the 18, 1840. So that's the system. That That's something that I also do do research you know the compare child to trace it back from India to Malaysia to to think that so the, the lease whole system that means the crown own the land but uh, the crown would uh, lease the land to you for a certain period of time it's usually quite a lot yeah I mean it's a lot yeah so longer than your life yeah um, yeah at that time for example Captain Yilia uh, in, in 80 in a 40 tried to attract the uh, people then you know they we really long 999 years things like that you okay. know and then <laughs> and then I think later 99 years and then sometimes then cut it short to 75 years, mm. things like that. So it will be lease, but uh, now nowadays even short. Okay. Nowadays shorter. But at that time, though, that that so you know this that system that has been you know so to speak borrowed and applied to mainland China, to mainland Chinese city, and then applied to Chinese city, and then you know so then from that on, then you know so to speak outsiders or capitalists can uh, go over to mainland Chinese cities and then get land, and then within that period then you know they would have the development uh, development right okay so so for example uh, like property developers from Dubai and Hong Kong who are now building in Guangzhou are just they, they just lease it's a leasehold yes, for yes, that yeah, okay yeah, they don't yeah, yeah. Uh, the system is you know, not like uh, you know, simply market in China it had you know I think back in the 80s 90s they have the so-called three-tier market mm. system uh, top is there would be developers but mostly you know developers granted by the by the city or by the by the state so those few developers who could get access to land and then from that they will then through the second secondary and the third transfer to other developers and then do it that way so in that way you can still see the monopoly of the state is simply uh, 
like that. So in that sense, then you know the state or its local agent at the city level uh, would have you know a, a greater command or grabs of the of the situation. Only you belong to that few developers, then you can easily get access to land. And then the, now, now situation has improved over time. Nevertheless, the, I think the logic and then other things is still there. Basically, the Chinese would like to have you know better control of what will be or is going to happen. So in that sense, then they won't release everything. So for example, in terms mm -hmm. of economic reform, there will be strategic sector, strategic sectors which would be you know grabbed uh, strongly by state enterprises, you know state agents and other things. So for example, banking that they they never release, and then for example, telecommunications. It's a few aspects. They really control for those open. For example, if you look at the history of opening up from the case of Shenzhen Special Economic Zone and then all these things. So, so basically, it then just start off with then the state will, or the, these are the area that will open, then you come. And then so it basically is slightly an art because I study the development of the Pearl River Delta and how it's how it has opened up, you know, slowly, slowly from originally really small, small, and then open up. And we can see that from that opening up of the Pearl River Delta, and then it start to say, oh, okay, then go to open up the uh, Shanghai area, Shanghai Special Economic Zone, and then, and then the Changjiang, and, all the, and then slowly open up. So in that sense, then, you know, at the beginning of the opening up, 78 is the Hong Kong capital. Now, of course, we, we can see that some would come in and there's exit Hong capital would, you know, basically contribute, I think, maybe 90% of the, all the FDI. As time well. proceeds, you know, things have been slower. But uh, someone uh, made, uh, I think, a simple calculation, uh, I think now at this moment, maybe 40, I, I can't, uh, either 40% or 60% still Hong Kong capital. Really? Wow. Yeah. So that's why, you know, in a sense, <laughs> no, mind you that the Hong Kong capital is registered in Hong Kong. Okay, but so, so it's, it's being channeled through Yeah, through yeah. Uh, Hong Kong uh, registered. And then, so, for example, in the 90s, a lot of Taiwanese come over too, and then we register uh, Hong Kong capital and move in because it, that's how, you know, Hong Kong uh, as an agent, of course, uh, they so are. So you just need to register your business in Hong Kong. Yes, and then uh, I, I think, yeah. And yeah. that is, but can a company based in China can yep. freely register in Hong Kong? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, uh, I think uh, one of the two, one of a few really big one was the the Ministry of Transport and Communication, the the one that who's the, which started actually the whole thing is the Shekou Shekou Industrial Zone. That agent. So so what we call is a re-export of uh, re-import of uh, capital. Then now is very common because you know, a lot of Chinese companies uh, come to Hong Kong and then list in the stock market, and from that you know you can get orders. So so it's a it's a very complicated process, and then. So certainly, I think is now in a sense, you know, that's why you know Hong Kong is still very important to China, and I think the turbulence, of course, putting quote turbulence, <laughs> Hong Kong, China tried to try to set up Macau as a financial that's center. A, okay, so Shenzhen is obviously well, that, a special economic zone, but that doesn't. It's still very much controlled and kind of like yeah, closed yeah, off. Yeah. So you know, because here Hong Kong and Macau are special administrative zone. We are called SAR. SAR. So we accept foreign foreign affairs, uh, defense, something free. That will be the auspices of the of the central government of the party. 
Otherwise, everything Hong Kong can design on its own. Nevertheless, uh, from the past two years, we see that you know Hong Kong you know recede a lot. But according to the system, that was the SAR. Now for Shenzhen as a special economic zone is. Shenzhen has, so to speak, power to decide on its own economic policies. It's, it's, it's governed by the Provincial People's Congress okay. and then the yeah, Provincial yeah. Government of Guangdong and then, of course, even Bozhou you know, from, from the mainland. So in that sense, Shenzhen is still very much limited. But Hong they have Kong, more power yeah. to get things done quickly yeah, and yeah, to kind yeah, of, yeah, 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 yeah. which is, I guess, how it's grown to such a huge city in yeah, yeah, such yeah, a yeah, short yeah. space of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it can decide on the economic side, but when there, there are a lot more limits. There are a lot more limits, a lot more hurdles, and then you know, Shenzhen has to has to uh, seek approval from provincial and then the state. But Hong Kong can do a lot of things within uh, the RAM, so to speak, allowed. And what what do you think are the most kind of pressing issues in Hong Kong at the moment then? Or what's kind of changed in the past 10 years, as you say, that's made it important to kind of focus your research here? I think, I, I, I think as I put a bit of care here, yes, the, somehow the, from actually before the so-called turnover, back to China, uh, it had already started. What I call is the you know, land redevelopment regime. It's basically the so-called the mingling of land capital, uh, basically developers and all this thing, and then banking, and then the government. What looks like the kind of neoliberal process that's happening in yeah, 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 yeah. Global cities. I don't want to call it that, but <laughs> I, I guess that's what I would call it probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like not coming because, here from London. Because I would argue, of course. Uh, you, you might want to ask um, is first of all, for example, Hong Kong. We n- have never had liberalism. <laughs> In a sense, and also, you know, I think is uh, after 1997, you know, the state is just out there. So because of all all, all this, I think it's that kind of because you know, you you must recognize that you know for the handover is at that time uh, I, I suppose that you know China thought that in order for Hong Kong to continue prospering the so-called system the economic system that made it successful in before 1990 should continue that's why you know basically the whole system have been you know I don't know whether it's, it should be called replicated or you know basically let it continue and so, you know, what happened before the, 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 the I just mentioned the land redevelopment regime, the collision between the government and other things, you know, just continue, it continue. And then, then even worse is once it continue, and then we are talking about with the intervention of the state. So make it even worse, make it even worse. Now, the thing is, one must recognize is, you know, there's a colon- it was a colonial government. The colonial government, you know, on the first state, almost the first state, I think Westminster would say to the colonial government, you have to live on your own financially. You know, I think you know, that dictates you know, how the whole Hong Kong system was operated. You know, so it will grant, it will do nothing basically, the government. You know, it's just grant you charter. You set up this, I will guarantee you, you know, so much profit. Everything is, was like this. And so, you know, that, you know, it started off from the very beginning. It's the, in a sense, you can say the coalition between the government and the capital started yeah. from the very beginning. That kind of, that kind of relationship, you know, always guarantee you. So, as time proceeds, for example, you know, our electricity company or same as uh, any other company, they will just simply expand the assets because the way that their the profit they can calculate is dependent on uh, 
when the asset is expanded, then they can get more profit. It's guaranteed. Although, for example, you know, we don't need the electricity, we don't need the water, we don't need all these people expanding. You know, so, so that the profit, they, they can guarantee the profit. So this is this kind of system. And also another thing is, and we're talking about why Hong Kong is so different from other cities is the land, the land capital come came at the very beginning. You know, on the first day, because as I said, you know, Whitehall said, you know, you have to be financially dependent. So you know, and on the first day, they have already you know put land on sale you know, to get get money so that that would be would get the government in all the all the the, the, the public purse uh, to do all the minimal things. Uh, that kind of thing, you know, really make Hong Kong really different. You know, start from the very beginning, and that's I think that's how I see it. No comparison to other colonial city. For example, you are talking about Mumbai, about Calcutta, or something like this. You know, because they are talking about you know the whole country was colonized, and then you are talking about one city. But in the case of Hong Kong, we are a city, and then that that we grow in it. So you know, there, there are a lot of you know, difference, and then the different path that Hong Kong has uh, has uh, undergone. You know. So that make it even worse. I think it's even worse is after handover. You know, that kind of thing you continue, and and that what I you know have been talking about is so the the system that we have basically inherited and then expanded after the handover totally a socially unjust system. We just spent a high proportion of our public purse on building infrastructure. You know, and of course after handover, you know, all the infrastructures were implemented to, to connect better to the mainland instead of for the rest for of the, the city. Hong Kong, yeah. you know, and which I guess led to the, the kind of high density yeah, structure yeah, of the city yeah, and yeah, yeah. So you know of course you know high density is also as I put it here, you know, high density partly because Hong Kong was colonized in three stages. First of all Hong Kong Island was uh, seeded in 1840, and then part of the Kowloon Peninsula was 1860, and then so it can and then the rest kind of expand. yeah, and then the rest of the new territories in 1898. Not the, that borough, not not least. So as a result, you can see that almost for 150 years, the Hong Kong government has total control is only on the seas land. So the the large tract of land in the new territories was leased or was borrowed, and so you know it has to deal with that kind of relationship. Although it started off in 18 but still, it's a borderland. It has to deal with. So uh, that's why we have broad branch, you know, trying to cheat the the all the all the owners of the you know, come. I will exchange your 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 deed, and then we will buy. So and then I think because of that. So as a result, you know, for a long time, development and redevelopment could concentrate in the, on the two sides of harbor. That's why you know we have the density that could never find in other parts of the world because you know <laughs> there are others. You know, once you have that, they then go go. When 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 I was uh, young. I live in one child. Next door, you know, suddenly locked down. The, the building might be quite new, simply because it has to lock down and get more GFA. Because this is the way to do it. This is the way that to to to, to make profit to to do all these things. So so that's why you know. Cooking all, all up, and in a sense, the Hong Kong government has been, you know, putting all kinds of legislature laws and order to basically facilitate this. And then that's why you know, so just keep building up. Yes, yeah, we are we, very concentrated. There. So after 1950, we started to, you know, seriously develop the new towns, but not until in the 1970s. Then we start to build the new towns. But even for the new towns, because it has, you know, tried to implement a public transport 
system relying on the heavy wheel, then you can only build on the accessible port. And that's why, you know, you new towns with a high density. I think for uh, Hong Kong, for Shukchan, for Sha Tin, it's, uh, I think, including Mike Mamon, we are talking about more than 700,000 people. That's bigger than a city a city in, in Britain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's more people than live in Glasgow, where yeah. I'm from. <laughs> uh, you live in Glasgow? I, I live in London, but oh. I'm from Glasgow. Oh, okay. Yeah, you can see that, you know. But, uh, I can't really imagine what the like psychological effects of kind of living in this type of setup are. Yeah, I think uh, simply yes for us. I think for Hong Kong people, Hong Kong Jews, usually uh, we have never thought of the so-called suburban dream of the Anglo-Saxon. Never. Well, that's ne- good. Ne- that's, ne- a good <laughs> that's a positive thing. <laughs> yeah, never. Just you know, basically have a flat. That's mm. the best you can get because that's how. Except, for example, I think for the lot some of the tycoons. Uh, Somebody can't think he has uh, mentioned a villa in a certain island, certain okay. part of the island, yeah, things yeah. like that. You know, otherwise, well, ordinary people, I think, in terms of for housing, you know, most of the have been rental. I think until the 1950s, when we started to have changed the system, that instead of when you buy, you don't buy a whole building, you then you can buy one floor, and then <laughs> and then another another incremental change. We'll be starting off uh, g- getting mortgage for one flat. And mm. then, so to speak, in that sense, then ownership really started to climb up in the 1950s and mm. that on because of the changes in the legislation that allowed, you know, so called people to, to own a flat. I, I guess young people probably can't afford to Oh, buy no, 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 can't. Homes now. Can't. can't. What, but still, the ideology that time, is still there. Still, the, still. I, like the, is it still the kind of des- desirable aim is to like own a property? This ideology is still kind of embedded. I think it, uh, it's uh, this kind of ideology started basically in the 1980s, uh, in a sense when the Hong Kong government recognizing that Britain has to give uh, Hong Kong back to China, and then from that, you know, started to retreat from the provision of rental public housing. Then it started in 1984 or something called long-term housing strategy, then promote home ownership. And then I think basically from that start off with then the, the process of, because I think currently the 40%, if I'm not mistaken, 40% of the people live in public housing, uh, including ownership public housing 40%. That figure was much higher. We are talking about you know, 60 or something, maybe a decade or two ago. ago. Now, of course, the percentage of people living in public housing is much lower than in Singapore. Singapore, we are talking about 80-something percent. So, but still, you know, you, you can see that, you know, we really high percentage. Yeah. But that kind of ideology that, you know, people should own a flat or start with the, the uh, government's retreat uh, from the provision of public housing, public housing. And then I think that has been the so-called policies of the, I think, at least last two governments that, uh, that I feel promote, even in public housing, try to cheat people, saying that we are going to provide more public housing, more, more, but more on ownership than on rental. So they provide new public housing but for people to buy? So, no, uh, so or, so government will build housing and yeah. then for sale. Okay. And then for sale. And then in the past, uh, we are talking about 60s, 70s, then all the public housing will be for rental. Basically, from the 70s, late 70s onward, we start off, the government start called home ownership scheme, so, so to speak. But people buy it with a mortgage? Yeah, 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 yeah. And but, it's 
but cheaper the, than buying but something the, on the commercial. Yeah, uh, supposedly fifty percent off okay. from the oh, from, from the private market because because the land is owned by the government. So the both the land and then the so-called housing authority or housing society to build the, the building the flat and then sell it to people. In that sense, the land is cheap and then they can sell it at 50% off of the private market. And there's a big difference given that you know, the private market is going up like that. 50% is still very expensive. Yeah, I, I, think I mean, that's like too much for someone who works in a oh yeah, minimum oh yeah. wage or low oh wage. Yeah. Oh yeah. But by the way, we, we were introduced was only minimum wage Actually, in the last three years. I was about to say, <laughs> I think when I last came to Hong Kong, I remember yeah. reading about the not yeah. being a minimum wage. Yeah, or still, we still don't have collective bargaining. Such a, I mean, yes, something I just take for granted now yeah. in the UK, yeah. but yeah. even yeah. though yeah. it's yeah. Yeah. not yeah. working in the yeah. UK. Yeah. Yeah. Even for this university, uh, the administration doesn't recognize the staff union. <laughs> How much is the minimum wage here? I think per hour is uh, $33 or something like that. You know, this Hong Kong system is chaotic <laughs> in a sense you know what for public housing you have to have income excluding you, know, you can't have access you have to have income lower than certain limit then mm. you are eligible to apply for public housing and then you usually now the queue is more than five and a half years so you start queuing but you need to be you need to be in a bracket the right bracket yes then, yeah. so you know certain you can check it out i i can't tell you yes one person flats is how much two person three person because of that it has created a chaotic situation in hong kong why because provision of housing uh, in the private market is so destined for a lot of families low-income family their only hope is to get a public housing flat because of that income limit a lot of people would try to earn less even if the employer would raise your wages you say no I don't you say no what? you say no or you know you try to work part-time so Shit, because because overall it yeah it once you over better. over over that limit you're disqualified okay. and that they end up with you know so this system they build in life in life that way that had you know led to the mushrooming of what we call all these subdivided flats and all this because you know those people are queuing for the public housing because of that they have to lower their income can so called automatically so where do you find a place to live so you have to squeeze your, your, yourself yeah, your yeah. whole family into flats of that kind for example those flats we are talking about maybe 100 square meter so yeah. 100 square feet or yes. even less you know 60 square feet a flat nowadays because uh, partly because of the Hong Kong family's preference to have family within closed door so what do you do you don't want to in the past like if you if you lived here in the 1950s so everyone would have the, a room and then would share toilet and share kitchen and then end up with a lot of quarrels a lot of fighting or whatever. so for so family nowadays they want to keep their family within a flat so what are those flats maybe you are talking about 60 square feet you have your kitchen you have the toilet is in it so we end up with what so i think that's the that's that's the situation in hong kong yeah. And that's the situation in Hong Kong. I think because of that kind of, I mentioned the, you can say, coalition between the Hong Kong capital, Hong Kong government, the capital land, and then you know, banking and all this, you know, get there together and then create a situation, a mess like this. I dread to think, like, it, what if you're disabled or you're a single mother oh, or you're, can, uh. do you get, like, to skip the queue? Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, you they, get, they like, it's like a priority. Com compensation <laughs> of ground. Okay. But you need, 
so to speak, you need uh, usually what is do, being done is the social worker who try to help you apply to the housing authority on compensation grant. So okay. uh, usually the queue will be shorter. But uh, I think for old people on uh, so because handicap may be the case, but for single mother might not might not be as, as good as old people. I think that's that, that that's a situation. I have done research on all this subdivided flats, and then at the time when we interview, what are the cases? You know, a lot of families have been waiting for five years. Subdividing these flats that's is perfectly legal, or is it against illegal? It is illegal, yeah. Illegal, but but the government obviously they say that doesn't they, they do don't, much about they it. Don't, they don't have sufficient. Hands <laughs> to do yeah. that. So until they receive formal complaints from people, launching mm. the formal complaints, then they will start action. Otherwise, you know, but everywhere is, is, is the case. Nowadays, we have this is a so called lower class of the divided flat. We have slightly higher class, <laughs> is that, you know, talking about six to seven thousand dollars a month uh, wage, and then a lot of the professionals, they don't want to stay with home. Uh, at home and then will maybe want to be independent then where do they find them so so some of these uh, higher class then for the higher class they might provide you with, with the electric attentions as well uh, okay. but like better but still the idea the whole thing the setting is the same only it might be more decorated that's it you know same thing so very bad quality of life <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah sorry sorry they uh, although i'm I love this city, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you know, if you go to a, I think a lot of lot of mainlanders when they come over to Hong Kong, they will tease us for the uh, poor living quality, and there's a, sometimes we always say, oh, socialism is better." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I went to view some kind of high-end um, apartments they were selling in Shenzhen to like investors, and it was tiny, and I was like, "It's really small." And made some comment, and the salesperson like, "Oh, it's it's Hong Kong style." <laughs> yeah, that was like yeah, a yeah, 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 like a yeah. trendy yeah, style yeah, yeah, to yeah, have. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was yeah. like, "Wow." Uh, yeah, I think, <laughs> well, that's the thing. So you know, uh, they have a. Uh, they have a good base of comparison. But uh, do you think there's a way to redesign such small spaces for living that, that make it more functional for people? Like, you know, maybe if space, if there's literally a shortage of space, then it needs to be about redesigning well, what's there or I, trying I to like... I think there's, uh, in a sense, there's no problem of redesigning. Only thing, uh, the problem is the government and, and those in the so-called establishment still have failed to recognize the social unjust system. Mm-hmm. have never recognized and what it has been you know, surprisingly recognized by the Hong Kong government is saying that you know, why did we have the last half year of unrest the young people could not get their flat but that's not that's not the reason but you know they just want to make excuses now they recognize it in the past, they never recognize it. <laughs> <laughs> is, is there much of a problem with homelessness, or is it like no, increased? I think it's for it's, for example for us. Surprisingly, a lot of lot of my friends have done the homeless homelessness research. In in term, in that sense, Hong Kong is not as serious as other cities. Now, I think on you may say on two grounds. First of all, we have public housing. Mm. Uh, second ground would be family. So in that sense, then you know, we we say like uh, sleepers and in, in terms of proportion is very in comparison to other. 
sit but the, the problem is there that in, in terms of this year is I one of the most recent is I went to Vancouver and then God you know the magnitude and then earlier with Osaka and other cities you know they're a lot more serious again I think partly because we have two two components with public housing and then family uh, of course that they are sleep uh, homeless then they either they have problems with the family or they could not uh, get public housing we don't see squatters in the same mm. the sense like you will go to Amsterdam a lot of so-called squatters live in deserted buildings in Hong Kong very few why is that is that like because of the government being stringent with like deterring this kind of thing or it's just not within the culture I think not within the culture within the, not within the culture do you know what about I met someone in Beijing years ago actually who was researching squatting in, in Beijing yeah which was, was, it was interesting because I just yeah, thought yeah, that yeah. would be non-existent yeah, that's underground, uh, and in, in underground building these yeah, like yeah, dormitories yeah, under yeah, 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 yeah. but I think in comparison Hong Kong very few I don't know what about because in the past a lot of activities turnover rate is higher so mm. you know your empty flat and it will be occupied very uh, very fast and or you know unlike for example Amsterdam you have the whole industrial area deserted and then you know that uh, no one cared and then those two people just uh, go in but uh, not so much in the case of Hong Kong space is quite occupied I guess <laughs> yes 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 it's very occupied of course now we have some this kind of squattering in, in the new territory some of the deserted farm and then uh, some of these uh, have been you know occupied or some of these even rented out a lot of uh, people Apologies for that slightly abrupt ending, it was somehow unavoidable. But thanks so much to Wing Sheng for his time and knowledge, which provides a rich starting point from which to explore how urban redevelopment is playing out in the cities of China and Hong Kong. Please see the description for links to some of his many papers and articles to read more on some of these subjects. Next time I'll be back in London, this time with Ollie Mould, a human geographer whose work focuses on issues of urban activism, social theory and creative resistance. Ollie is the author of Against Creativity and Urban Subversion and the Creative City. We go to look at luxury property at Blackwall and Canary Wharf in East London, as well as trendy co-living complex The Collective at their Canary Wharf branch. Till then, stay safe, stay healthy, stay home if you can, and don't forget to subscribe to Asset Arrest, share and support us on Patreon. See you next time at home in London. You're listening to Asset Arrest, helping you see the most exclusive parts of the city.